You are listening to Things Worth Doing, the final sermon in our series entitled Perfecting Ourselves to Death, preached in the summer of 2008 at Hocus Baptist Church. And now, Pastor John. Well, I want to welcome you as we close out our series uh, entitled Perfecting Ourselves to Death. Uh, this is the fourth and final message in this series. Next week we start a series I've entitled Breaking Forth, which is a look at the birth of the church in early Acts, and I'm excited to preach that. Uh, but as we close out this sermon series, I feel a need to close out a phrase or the way we ended last week, which we ended last week with this statement. We kind of toyed around with this classically perfectionist statement that if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And we kind of, as we talked through it, we we came to the conclusion that as far as Christ is concerned, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing, even if it's poorly. And so I, I, I kind of want to get some closure on that because almost at the moment I said it, I, I realized that I had left some hanging chads on the comment uh, <clears throat> through some comments that were made to me and through just thinking about it. It's easy to say if it's worth doing, it's worth doing. Now go in peace. But it doesn't really, you know, that, that alone doesn't give sufficient answer to a lot of people, particularly perfectionists. Because perfectionists, as soon as they hear that, will ask, well, then what is worth doing? Give me the seven or eight things that I need to do. Uh, this list. And so today we're going to spend some time talking about how do we know what is worth doing and how do we view ourselves in God's kingdom. I should say before I start, <clears throat> this is one of those you might be a perfectionist if quiz questions. Uh, so I have this correspondence, by the way, I got permission for this. Um, I, I have a correspondence throughout uh, this week with, a, with a, a family that had shared some thoughts and insights on uh, last Sunday's sermon, uh, to which I'm thankful. And as I'm thinking about it, well, they, they make a comment in the body of the text, something to the degree of, I am a perfectionist, is what this person confessed. In fact, they said, we are perfectionists, husband and wife. And you might be a perfectionist if you say this in your postscriptum. By the way, the phrase, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right, should actually be, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. So, so if that's you... <laughs> By the way, I'm like, uh, I'm like you're never going to get perfect, perfect grammar from me, so uh, you can at least enjoy that. But if that's you, um, hopefully this morning we can kind of work through, so what is it we ought to do if it is worth doing? And, and here's a few things before we start the message that I don't mean to suggest, or that I'm not intending. The first is, is I am not saying that we ought to do everything we do poorly. So when I say if it's worth doing, it's worth doing even if we do it poorly, I am not suggesting that the things we do poorly are things we ought to do necessarily. So if you don't have, know a lick of, of music or you can't play an instrument, I'm not suggesting that you join the praise team. If you can't stand children, I'm not suggesting that you enter the children's ministry, although we could use your help. In fact, uh, there's the investment guide survey, which I encourage you to fill out. This is my cheap push for that, right? Uh, there's a lot of places to help, but I'm not encouraging you to do things for which you don't feel called by the Lord. What I am encouraging to do is to not resist the Spirit as He calls us to step forward. Here's another thing I don't mean. 
When I say it's worth doing even if we do it poorly, I'm not suggesting that we can just do whatever we want poorly. It's not an an encouragement or it's not permission to simply say, well, in that case, I'll just do things poorly. Clearly that's not the admonition of Scripture. And clearly that's not what was suggested last week. Last week was an attempt to spur us on, to take risks so that the Lord might glorify himself through our weakness, which is a classically, that's a classic challenge for perfectionists. The perfectionist in us does not want to step out because we don't want to fail and then have to deal with that. But the Lord is calling us to step out, even if it means failure. So with that, I'll say a prayer, and then we'll go ahead and get started on what ought we do. <clears throat> Please pray with me. Lord, uh, you own this time, Lord. And so we, we ask that you help us take captive uh, the thoughts and the words said this morning, Lord, and that uh, you would bring life to our souls, that you... For those of us struggling with the challenges of perfectionism, Father, I pray peace and ease and joy. Father, in those who, of us who are not challenged by it, Lord, I pray compassion and forgiveness and love for those who do. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the four weeks, this is how the four weeks were laid out in case you haven't been with us. <clears throat> Week one in perfecting ourselves to death we address the whole idea of how does perfectionism fit into this gospel picture. So, do we need to be perfect for Christ? Do we need to be perfect to enter the kingdom? And, of course, the answer to that is no. Uh, but we, we kind of worked that idea out in week one that, excuse me, that we are accepted by grace and not by our works. Week two, Rick talked a lot about the way the Father views us, the way our Heavenly Father views us, in the way that he's not rating us and he's not grading us and we're not constantly under this like semi-Olympic level of judgment about the way we do things. And God doesn't love us more or less depending on how well we do. And we're going to kind of hint back to this, this idea of God being our Father a little bit uh, later this morning. But that was week two. And then week three, we started pushing into, so what are the negative tendencies of perfectionists? And we said, one of them is, is that they get perfectionists. We generally get overly involved in details, so much so that we often miss the greater arching truth. So in a moral scheme, perfectionists are the kind of people who are so dedicated to doing the right thing that they forget mercy, justice, love, compassion, forgiveness. But they've done all the right things. They've done so much good, they've done no good at all. The other thing we talked about, the other tendency of perfectionists, is that they generally because they, they weigh themselves by what they do and their results are so significant to their self-value, they don't take risks. And this morning, we're going to try to look at three principles, just three principles to help us understand what is it we do. So there's, I'm sure there are a thousand principles uh, that we can use to figure out what should we do as Christians in this life. I've chosen three this morning with particularly within the frame of reference of perfectionism. So with that said, the first principle that we'll look at this morning, that if you're trying, if you're sitting there going, so what ought I do, is this. We ought to learn to recognize the thought patterns of this world. That we ought to learn to recognize the thought patterns of this world. And I say that because, by and large, the thought patterns of this world are things we ought not to do. So if you're trying to figure out what to do, a good like, rule of thumb is figure out what the world is telling you to do and don't do it. But I'm going to give you a few thought patterns of the world just so that it's not just some broad platitude. But as a general rule, we, need to, we should know what the thought patterns of the world are so that we can uh, not allow them to creep into our soul. And the first one I want to talk to is the fact that the world 
makes a habit of emphasizing the physical over the spiritual. That the world we live in wants to emphasize the physical things over the spiritual things. And the way that works out in our life, we kind of talked about it in week one, is that the world says the things that are important are our appearance, the way we dress, you know, how much we weigh, how healthy we are, how many times we go to the gym, our health, our children, the kind of education we've received, the kind of job we have, the kind of car we have. All of these things are tangible, tactile things we can put our hands on, right? How much money do I have in the bank? That's a sign of success. What kind of job title do I have? That's a sign of success. How obedient are my children in public? That's a sign of success. And these are the things that the world says you ought to do. You know, and I got to take confession. I have three boys, and boys like to horse around a lot, all the time. And I find myself there's times when I'm in public, and like my boys are hanging from chandeliers, and in my heart I think it's cool. You know, I kind of sitting there going, I wish I was hanging from the same chandelier, but I find myself constricted, and I'm sure many of you parents as well find yourself going, get down off the chandelier. Because what's driving you is, what are the people around thinking? Even though it's perfectly healthy for boys to hang from chandeliers. <laughs> We've done it since the, since the creation of... Chandelier is probably French for hanging bar. So, uh, so we have these things. It's, the world puts this pressure on us of, of the physical. But the kingdom puts pressure on us of the spiritual. I would ask you this morning, what kind of physical... Signs of success did Jesus have? Was he attractive? Did he have a lot of money in the bank? Was he renowned? Was he well-respected? Did he have a great education? Great, great occupation? Did he come from a prominent city of a prominent family, from a prominent tribe? No. This is the only thing we know about, about Jesus' appearance. It's from Isaiah 53. It says this. He grew up Before him, like a tender shoot, and like the root out of a dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That's Isaiah 53. If you think about Christ, not only does Christ not seem to take the world very seriously, the ministry of Christ defies the world. It isn't like he's passive to the emphasis of the world. He defies it. The way of the hundreds and thousands, nearly infinite ways that Christ could have come into existence, he chooses to come in through a stable from an inconsequential family that's from a small town north of Samaritan land in Nazareth that's completely nondescript. He's unlearned. He's got a working man's job. He calls alongside of him tax collectors and other working men. His whole life defies earthly judgment. So if you, want, if you want the crown of Christ, you don't have a crown of gold, you have a crown of thorns. And if you desire one day to be exalted to the high place of Jesus Christ, the place is a cross, and not a throne or a palace or a city on a hill. Because Christ defies this idea that the world's judgment, the world's standards of the physical are important. That's one way the world gives us one of these negative tendencies. Another way the world does this is they, they emphasize the ends over the means. So the world, the pressure from the world emphasizes the result and not how you got there. And I, can't, I, I imagine that most of you who, who live in the working world have been in some kind of meeting where someone said something like, I don't care how we get this done, we need to get this done. 
And I imagine there's many of you who have come to the crossroads in one of those meetings of, there are two ways to do this, and one of them is less than ethical. But we live in a world that says the result is what matters. Get it done. That's why, that's why you know, there's, every, every time school rolls around, you hear people talking about how academic honesty is in a crisis today. It's because we have taught young people that the grade is what's important. How few people go to college to learn anymore? We go to college to get a job. We're all about the ends. But Christ is about the means. In fact, this is the way that Christ talks. The thing that we need to remember as Christians is, you and I, the one thing we don't have control over are the ends. We have no control over the ends. The ends sit in the hands of God. All God is concerned about is how we get there. Yet you and I, we slave round and round and round to make sure we can determine the outcome when the whole time the Lord's saying, the outcome is in my hands. All I want you to do is get there in a way that brings me pleasure. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of means, not ends. It's a kingdom of how we do things, not what we end up doing. And that is in contrast to the message of this world. Finally, the last kind of thought pattern of the world that I'll share with you before we move on. I I would like to say one thing about means and ends real quick before I move on. So let me give you an example. Paul the Apostle comes to know the Lord on the road to Damascus. If you read in Galatians, he kind of gives his own testimony. He says, after he comes to the Lord, he leaves and he goes to Arabia for three years. So he spends three mysterious years in the desert. Nobody knows what happens while he's there. Then he comes back, and it appears as though there's some confusion or debate, but it appears as though the next, he says, he spends 14 years more before he really starts to go on mission. And so there's essentially 17 years from the salvation of Paul till Paul's first missionary journey, plus or minus a little bit of time. Now, during those 17 years, now Paul knows his stuff, right? He's second to none among the Jews. He's got a heart for the Lord. He's got a heart to spread the gospel. He's got a heart to win people to Christ. He's got a heart to tell the new love of Jesus to Gentiles, right? He says he's an apostle to the Gentiles. So all this time during these 17 years, you can imagine in Paul, imagine getting ready for a mission trip for 17 years. Imagine in your mind the kind of harvest you would hope to see. To hear things like at Pentecost in Jerusalem, 3,000 come to the Lord in a single day. I, I, I would imagine that Paul's thinking, man, it would be nice that when I go on this mission journey, what if that happens? And if Paul were a man of ends and not means, he would go expecting that to happen and he would base his success on it. But this is what happens. Paul goes on his first missionary journey, which, by the way, never even gets outside of Turkey. So this great effort to bring the gospel is about a year in Turkey and he comes back. And almost every town he goes to, he gets slandered, persecuted. One time he gets stoned within an inch of his life. He gets run out of town. There's laws cast against him. There's thrown in jail. The people he's with are threatened. Persecution in every corner. And you know how many people come to Christ? A few. All of that effort, a few people come to Christ. So few that they can almost name them from the first missionary journey. Some towns totally disregard him. Some towns anticipated him showing up. The Jews were ready for him when he showed up. And so he ends this first missionary journey after 17 years of conversion and getting ready for this mission. He ends it with, eh, 
few people came to know the Lord. Now, if you are a person, who, if Paul was a person where the ends mattered and not the means, do you think he would have had a second missionary journey? If Paul were a person where the ends mattered and not the means, do you think he would have gone to the second town on his first missionary journey? It is, it is Christians who are Christians of means that do things that the Lord commands even when they don't bear fruit. And you and I, if we are Christians of ends, we will share the gospel once. And if the person doesn't convert, speak in tongues, and heal somebody, we'll never do it again. But when we're Christians of means, we preach the gospel because the gospel's truth and because God tells us and because it lives inside of us. And missionaries that go on mission to save souls are missionaries that come home disenfranchised. Missionaries that go on mission to be part of God's kingdom are ones who grow in their field. We've been called to be missionaries of means. Christians of means. And that's what makes someone like Paul not only do a first missionary journey, but a second and a third, and we believe a fourth. And by the time that we understand that Paul gets martyred, it's generally believed that he has preached the gospel of Jesus Christ as far west as Spain. That's something that only Christians of means do. But the world says, just get it done. Now I'll get to that final thought process, that thought pattern of the world, and that is that it magnifies and it emphasizes the self over others. The world says, you, the individual, are the supreme entity. That's all you can control. That's all you can take care of. So take care of yourself. You're number one. The negative perfectionist side of that is, is that the more and more we believe it, the more and more we feel the burden of success sitting on our shoulders. That if I don't do it, it will fail. And if it fails, then I'll be worthless. The feel-good side of it is this poisonous New Age theology which says that the energy for success is within you. That you, you possess the power within you through positive thinking to achieve. You can do it. You can fulfill your own dreams. Aim for the stars. That is what, by the way, that's essentially the world tells our young people. Is you are the point. What does Christ say to that? There is no dream worth dreaming if Christ is not in it that's worth arriving at. The the kingdom says it is not about you. It is about the Lord. It is not about what's right for us. It's about the kingdom. And so these thought thought patterns, and like I said, there's many more, but this idea of ends over means, this idea of physical over spiritual, this idea of individual over, over relational, They're poisonous, sinful ideas that leave us, when trying to figure out what to do, arrogant, bitter, cynical, critical, depressed, full of anxiety, and feeling lost. So our first clue as to what to do is to figure out what are the thought patterns of the world, be suspicious of them, and generally move on. Here's our second point, our second element or principle this morning that we can live by is to seek a life of satisfaction in the pursuit of the Lord. To seek a life of satisfaction in the pursuit of the Lord. Now let me flesh this out, because even if I say it, it doesn't necessarily sound so significant, but let me suggest it this way. Seek to find satisfaction not in finding God, but in pursuing God. So when you're thinking, particularly for the perfectionist in you, when you're trying to find satisfaction in life, Don't try to find satisfaction in life in kind of solving different areas of your life, ethical areas, but try to find satisfaction in the fact that you're growing. So for those of you 
who are, who are frustrated with, with the perfectionist tendencies, I would say, look back on your life. Look back on your life a week or a month, a year, a season, a number of years, and ask yourself, do you see yourself growing? Do you ask yourself spiritual questions today that you didn't ask a year ago? And if you find, if you look and you say there's growth, I would say allow yourself to find peace and satisfaction in that. Because on this side of life, that is as much as we will get. You or I will never arrive on this life to a place where we can go, we have achieved. We have achieved holy perfection. That will only happen in, in God's eternal kingdom. And so this life is about journeying towards Christ. And the satisfaction for a perfectionist, if that's your tendency, is to look and constantly expect to see growth. That's what you can find satisfaction in. We should find joy in the fact that we're maturing, not in that we've arrived. The fact that we're learning, not that we know. The fact that we have purpose, not that we have some produce to point at. I told you we'd talk a little bit about father and children, or parents and children. Anyone who's a parent knows that you just love your kids. You just love them. No matter how rotten they are, you just love them. My daughter Grace, she ate potting soil yesterday for like the third time. You know, sometimes I wonder. I mean, she is crazy. She eats dog food and potting soil, and we can't get her to stop. Now, if I, was, right, if I was the way we think the Lord is sometimes, I would consider stop loving her. And if I thought, if, if I put satisfaction in my life in arriving on things, unlike our Heavenly Father is, I would say, why doesn't my 18-month-old speak Greek? And, you know, I'm really waiting for her to become politically active. And you know, she should be driving. It's been 18 months already. Right? That's what, the, that's what the, kind of the world tells us is, or, and that we're, we're led to believe is that we're supposed to find satisfaction in arriving or conquering or closing out an issue in our life. That's where it is. We'll, we'll deal with an issue and then we'll be satisfied. The Lord says, no, you find satisfaction in growth. And any parent knows that we don't expect our children to do some abnormally mature thing at a young age. I expect Grace to say two words together right now. And when she does, I'm tickled pink, especially if daddy's in it, right? As parents, you don't want your children to have arrived. You just want to see them move. You just want to see steady progression. You don't have grand schemes for your 18-month-old. You have meager schemes, like, I hope she doesn't eat potting soil tomorrow. (laughs) If we can just get past that, there'll be growth. And that's how the Lord is with us. The Lord's not looking to you to see, have you closed an issue out in your life? He's looking to say, are you coming along? Can you hear my voice more today than yesterday? That's what he's looking for. And that's what we should put our joy in. And that's what we should reserve our satisfaction for. Paul speaks in Romans, in the 8th chapter, he speaks of not attaining, he speaks of this idea of future glory. Perfectionists, we want our glory now. We want to realize it now. And Paul says it's future glory. He says that's the point of hope. What is hope if we have it in things we can see? That's no hope at all. He says true hope is in things we cannot see. And he describes life, the life we live, as though we are in labor. He says that the earth and creation groan as though in labor of birth. In fact, it's interesting the more I think about it because I wonder if Paul's describing the Christian life 
as the period of life experienced almost in the birth canal. We think we arrive and we grow old in the Lord and then we die. And it's almost a suggestion as Paul is, is that our life is spent in the painful labor of delivery and we are delivered into eternity. But what that echoes is that life is not perfect. It's a life of perseverance and struggle and it's a life where the learning comes through pain. He says this in the fifth chapter. He says, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. It's what he means when he speaks of running the race. Paul finds satisfaction in running. Not in crossing the finish line, but in running. I was vi- talking with my wife. I, I, I give my practice run sermons every night, every Saturday night. My wife slams them. <laughs> Makes me feel terrible and then goes to bed. <clears throat> So last night, as in every Saturday night, I'm giving my wife the kind of the dry run, and, and she says, uh, we start getting into some, uh, it, it was, I mean, to her credit, she's always insightful, and after I get over my anger, I realize how smart she is. But in doing so, it, it, it got me thinking about, not only in my own life, but in the life of many here, those of you who struggle with addictions or places where you cannot find freedom in, in the Lord, places where you, you feel like you have done everything right. You have prayed the right prayers. You've prayed so many prayers, you've prayed all the wrong prayers just to make sure that maybe they were right. You've asked the Lord a hundred times, not three times like Paul. You've asked him daily to take away. You start each morning thinking you're going to be righteous, and you end the day, and you've made the mistakes again. Or you're trapped again, or you're depressed again, or you feel the anxiety again. And you're wondering, why does God not deliver me? I would say the deliverance this morning for Christians, deliverance is from God, and it is a gift. When God delivers us into salvation, is it a gift? It is a gift. When he delivers us from an addiction, it's a gift. When he delivers us out of depression, it is a gift. And so our deliverance from an issue should not be seen as growth necessarily. It's a gift. It's grace. And yet we work and we work and we say, I've worked so hard, why am I not delivered? And I would be here to suggest this morning that maybe for some of you the Lord is growing you and that adversity. He'll deliver you when he wants to deliver you, but your growth occurs in perseverance. Through our sufferings, we persevere. Through our perseverance, we gain character. And through our character, we gain hope. And that way we realize that while we're suffering, we're growing. And when we're delivered, it's grace. Because pride comes the other way around. Pride comes when we think that our deliverance from our sins are through growing. Oh, yeah, I outgrew that. We cannot outgrow grace. So our second point this morning in trying to determine what should we do, first we say we should take mark of what the world tells us to do and be suspicious of it. Secondly, we should say whatever it is we do, we should not place satisfaction in the accomplishment of it, but in the journey towards doing it. That we should not take satisfaction in having it cinched up but in, in leaning for it and growing into it. And the third point and the final point this morning in figuring out what we should do is simply that we should seek to imitate Christ. That we should seek to imitate Christ. For those of you out there who are saying, what do I do? Do I do praise team? Do I, how do I invest? I encourage you to fill out your investment guide and to think about those things. That is not ultimately, though, what the Lord is getting at. The things, those things may, some people may do and some people may not do. And I can't sit here and say, 
you ought to do this. What I can say is we ought to be more like Christ every day. So if you're trying to figure out where should you pour your energy, I would start to meditate on what is Christ like. Look at what Christ did do and try to do that. So look at Christ. How does Christ treat the Heavenly Father? Let's see. When he says this is how you ought to pray, he says, Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So if you're trying to figure out how you ought to do towards the Lord, I would say, do you truly pray for God's will to be done? Or do you pray that the Lord would have your will be done? Because from personal experience, I know that's generally my prayer profile, is I pray for a while that the Lord would do my will, and then I realize how crummy I am, and then I kind of end it with, sorry, the other way around, amen. When you're trying to figure out how to interact with people, how, how did Christ interact with people? A few weeks ago, we, we, we hearkened on the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the weak, the meek, those who thirst for righteousness, those who suffer persecution, those who are lovers of peace, those who mourn. If you want to be like Christ, be those. Don't put so much attention to what the world says important. Put attention into what Christ spent his life doing. How did Christ invest his life? He invested his life feeding, caring, healing, forgiving, and loving. And so I would say that there are many things Christ did. For perfectionists, for those of us who struggle with perfectionism, I'll give you a few that are probably good places to start. The first one is, attempt to foster a life of humility. Because one of the major roots of perfectionism is pride. You have ideas about how you think things should be done, and the whole world should alter its rotation to make sure that happens. There's only one way to do things. It's your way. Even in your own life, right? When you succeed, some of, the, some of the worst perfectionists are the ones who are talented because when they succeed, they're worth more. And so they build a life of blossoming arrogance because they're capable. And I would say seek to harbor humility in your soul. Philippians 2 says this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be fathomed, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ humbled himself. Ought we not to humble ourselves? Ought we not to pause and say, what can I do for them rather than what can they do for me? I think if you, particularly those, again, who are struggling with perfectionism, the more that you can seek humility, the more grace you can have when things don't meet your standards. When, the, when what you're hoping that the result is, when it comes out short, which it invariably will, because perfectionism makes us as set higher standards than are possible to achieve. So when we find ourselves disappointed, when we humbly realize that we're not entitled to success, that we're not entitled to have other people render us success, it makes us all the more ready to give grace. The second area that I would encourage you as a perfectionist to work is to work on being forgiving. To work on being forgiving. Because one of the hardest things for perfectionism is not only to forgive others, but to forgive ourselves. We work and we work and we work to achieve, and then when we fail, we dash our spirits to the ground. Why can we not do this? And I would say, seek the forgiveness of Christ. Christ forgave all. So can't we at least forgive some? The Lord's Prayer, we spoke at the beginning a second ago, it has a few elements in it. So 
the Lord's kingdom and his will, our daily bread, safety and passage through evil, forgiveness. It says, Lord, forgive us of our debts as we forgive those, our debtors, depending on your translation. And then it ends with amen. But right after it, there is a one-sentence commentary on the prayer. So Christ gives this big famous prayer that everybody knows. And this is his commentary on the Lord's Prayer. For those who forgive, they will be forgiven. But for those who do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. That whole prayer, and he ends it with that. So how important do you think forgiveness is in the life of a Christian? That is the only thing upon which we hang our hopes, is that we've been forgiven. And yet when we apply standards to others and to ourselves and they fail to meet them, so often we just judge and put the pressure and turn the thumbscrews. And I would say that a path to freedom for perfectionism is through forgiveness and through humility. <clears throat> this notion of imitating Christ is expounded upon in Ephesians 4 and 5. It's two chapters worth of Paul talking about imitating. He starts with this idea. He says, be as God in chapter 4. And then he starts chapter 5 with, be imitators, therefore, of Christ Jesus. And then a little bit farther down in chapter 5, he rephrases it a third way. And we'll close on this third idea. He says, be children of light. Be children of light is how he says it. Which is, harkens in my mind to this, one of the most gentle teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, which is when Christ says, you are the light of the world. And he tells us to let our good deeds shine as light. Let them shine before men so that what? So that they may glorify our Father in heaven. And there's this idea that we don't simply imitate Christ to benefit ourselves. We imitate Christ because we 